1: change a single memory i call in sick and spend time with you these are the days to remember these are the days to remember
2: the deconstructionist podcast is produced by nicholas rowe at the national audio preservation society recording studio in
3: newark ohio Follow us on social media at www.thedeconstructionist.com, on Facebook at Deconstructionist Podcast, Twitter at Deconstructcast, and Instagram at Deconstructionist Podcast. If
2: listening to this podcast has benefited you in any way, consider making a donation. The donate link is in the show notes, or you can visit our website and click the Donate tab. Welcome to the deconstruct that was loud. Boom. Dang. <laughs> Welcome to the deconstructionist podcast everyone. <laughs> he is your host Adam Narlock. and he is your host John Williamson. <laughs> See, we switched it up, a little variety, <laughs> a little, little variety. And boy is this episode a little variety for all you people out there that want to really take a plunge. With a worthy, wonderful guide into some really fun, nerdy stuff about theology to really expand your minds theologically, without um completely losing you. Man, this is a this is a treat. Yeah, who do we have this week? The wonderful, the beautiful, uh, the intelligent, the strong, Catherine Keller,
3: dude. She, <laughs> wow, she might she might melt your brain. Yeah. She, she's, oh. yeah, there'll be some brain melting. So the cool thing about the book that we talk about with her before I get in a little bit of her bio is that she uh, brings in the idea of quantum entanglement, right? Remember oh, that? yeah. So she brings in this, this complex scientific theory into theology in this really unique kind of cool way um, that I think is very, very unique. Uh, but uh, as we said, Dr. Catherine Keller, she is a professor of constructive theology, um, at the Theological School of Drew University, um, and she's also a lecturer, a writer, uh, and, and uh, she's got quite a few books out. The one that we really talk about is her latest book called "Cloud of the Impossible: Theology and Planetary Entanglement." Um, that's absolutely insane. So it is amazing. Catherine is so brilliant.
2: I just don't even have words. She's just uh, she's wonderful to speak to. And the reason that John and I wanted to have someone like Catherine Keller on is because most of us grew up in a tradition that there is um, theologians or people that go to seminary or people that think theologically or think about God and write about God really just kind of fall into a couple streams. You know, you've got some Protestants, you got some Catholics, you know, a little variety here and there. But, you know, basically everybody's, you know, down with, you know, all the traditional models of who God is, and, you know, what all this means, and there's a lot more to be said out there. There's a lot more imagination. There's a lot more creativity. Um, One of the things we touch on in here, for those of you that find this interesting, and everybody should find this interesting, but it's kind of got some traction lately. Science Mike talks about it a little bit. I've heard the liturgists talk about it, Um, is this concept of process theology. I'm not going to get into that now, but we talk about that. Um, One of the main reasons I wanted to have Catherine Keller on, outside of the fact that she's just phenomenal, is one of the interesting things in deconstruction for me, and I think for a lot of people, is this idea of mystery, of unknowability. Yeah, We're all kind of curing ourselves from this idea of certainty or over-certainty or certitude. And one of the things Catherine really latches onto and specializes in her work is this idea of mystery, deep mystery, uh, hyper complexity. That things are so much more than the the simple, neat little labels and categories that we've given to them that we need this, um, what she calls an apophatic response. That's what the cloud is. The cloud is essentially... It's a cloud, it's it's not clear, it's hazy, it's it's and so the cloud of the impossible is such a beautiful work. Um and we talk about that and for me in my deconstruction, I needed to know that God was so big that our language, our ability to decipher, you know, to put names to is um lacking. And it yeah. need, needs more space. And that's why I wanted to have Catherine Keller on.
3: And boy, did she, uh, <laughs> deliver the goods. Whoa. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I think, uh, I think not more, not much more needs to be said about, uh, about that. Oh, we and, can just uh, get right to it. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> Without um,
2: further ado. Wait, if a couple yeah. warnings. Yeah. If you're driving. Pull over. Pull over. <laughs> find a rest stop if you're working out at the gym you're on the treadmill put your hands on the railings of the treadmill um may want to put on a helmet for this one (laughs) yeah i mean this is really really good stuff guys uh enjoy it
3: wrap it yourself in bubble wrap if if necessary (laughs) (laughs) i just
2: got a mental picture of you wrapped wrapped in bubble wrap with an ipod and and like your little earbuds and you're smiling
3: (laughs) well we we have talked about my story about falling off the treadmill before so maybe (laughs) mine mine too maybe i should yeah this might
2: be one where you do really enjoy this episode guys um we are thrilled to give you a conversation with a brilliant theologian and our close personal friend Catherine, freaking Freaking Keller. keller Well, Catherine Keller, we are beyond delighted, excited, thrilled to have you with us here on the Deconstructionist Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us.
4: Well, I'm uh, immediately picking up that thrill <laughs> and so, <that's laughs> exuberance you're both communicating about this conversation. So thanks for starting it.
3: Oh, abs- absolutely. Absolutely. So one of the questions that we like to start off with, just so our, our listeners can get a sense of who you are and and, and kind of the work that you do, um, if you could, why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about your background? Um, you know, kind of how you were raised and how did you get involved in the work that you currently do?
4: Mm-hmm. It's not as simple a question as as uh, would be convenient. I, I had a very eclectic background in every sense, cultural, <laughs> spiritual. Uh, geographical so my family moved constantly and there was a lot of a lot of uh, destabilization in that constant shifting so rarely did we live anywhere more than a couple of years uh, and that went on uh, until you know, high school I had the whole three years that was very fortunate and after that I was more on my own and, and began to stabilize and eventually got a seminary degree uh, but the the journeys that i went on with my family though often uh, often uh, complicated and and, and, and difficult uh, in many ways uh nonetheless certainly opened me to uh, an enormous and contradictory world of of perspectives of peoples <laughs> of, of cultural viewpoints of uh, Christianity, yes. Christianity, no. <laughs> <These> <laughs> kinds of it. Uh, occasionally, my stepfather was um, functioning as a pastor. He had had some background um, back just after the war. He was uh, Swiss, or as I've recently learned, actually German, uh, <laughs> but in the Sorbonne um Studying some New Testament, but that all cracked down gradually. Nonetheless, there were some really important shards of uh, of experience that gave me a sense that there was something I wanted to explore in uh, religion. First of all, I think it was Zen Buddhism that tuned me into how religion could be like really liberating and smart. And I thought, oh, mm. maybe I'll check Christianity out. I mean, there's something there, too. It was <laughs> probably a figure in Zen flesh, Zen bones, saying, hmm, <laughs> that, that Jesus came very close to enlightenment. So
2: Amazing. that
4: was an important cue for me when I was, oh, you know, 16. Uh, and, and it went on from there. Uh, I was in, in Germany then for a few years, for, well, two and a half, studying theology and uh, that was during the undergraduate years, uh, and then came back and went to went to seminary, uh, and that's when I started actually like finishing things, which wasn't a family practice, but I actually got a degree finally, <laughs> and and really developed a, a strong sense of of uh, connection uh, and commitment uh, to the church. That was the United Church of Christ, um, and then. Went on uh, to graduate school, but in seminary, I had just amazing perspectives opened up for me, especially uh, process theology uh, and Paul Tillich through my professor there, who was Alan Miller. Uh, and at the same time, uh, you know, feminism was hitting the scene. This is the mid 70s. And so uh, I was reading Beyond God the Father by Mary Daly and Rosemary Bradford Ruther's first works. Um, wow. And, and just beginning to put all that together, which was dramatic and iconoclastic. But there was enough support from, you know, really three of the male professors. They were all male professors <laughs> at seminary. Really strong support of my questions, uh, of my adventure, of my, of my soul, uh, from those old guys uh and and so that's why i stayed with christianity right there there wow. was, there wasn't an experience of much defensiveness against these these radical new uh problems arising
0: hmm.
4: there was some of that too uh but in in interesting forms not in in uh in a simple contradiction of you know <laughs> my burgeoning and, and ferocious 1970s <laughs> and, you know, just, you know, the history of patriarchal Christianity. Uh, I, I was very tuned to that contradiction, but it wasn't slapping me in the face. I was encountering uh, really uh, meaningful voices and embodiments of the prophetic side of Christianity Wow, the progressive side. And if I hadn't, I would have been right out of there, you know, because it was a time when, of course, most feminists said, how could you be a (laughs) how can you be a a Christian and a feminist? Amazing. They were also saying, how can you be a Jew and a feminist? How can you, you know, how can you? Sure. Uh, But uh, I I experienced the possibility of a third place not getting caught in apologizing for the patriarchy. Uh, or being in denial of it, but also not needing just to, to to slam the door on the incredible wisdom of of the tradition. So then I felt very much lured to uh, to Claremont to study with John Cobb, based on reading his Christ in a Pluralistic Age.
2: Yeah, very very cool. Okay,
4: and I think you know after that it starts getting to be a a recognizable sort of. Uh, Intellectual journey, uh, mm. integrating the 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 process theology and the Whitehead uh, mm. with the feminism and with other interests that I had, and uh, and finding again great support in John Cobb, uh, which I still enjoy to this day. He's ninety two and just back from doing some amazing work in in China, uh, <laughs> busy emailing me to. Keep me up on the politics of, uh, of you know, United States, China, and, and Russia, geopolitically and ecologically. So you know, that's my old advisor, John Cobb. Uh, awesome. Yeah. So I've I've been really graced uh, with good support uh, from these old guys. Yes. And so that has kept my feminism always evolving and. That's great. somewhat, <laughs> somewhat non-defensive, I think compared to what it might have, might've have been. So why don't you ask me what more you'd like to hear? <laughs> sure,
3: sure. Uh, no, one of the, actually you, you kind of started to, to speak about it a, a little bit. One of the things you brought up is, uh, John Cobb's work in process theology. And for those who are listening, who are like, what in the world is that? Okay. Um, could you break down a little bit? Yeah. I think it's really interesting. We're both, uh, r- really fascinated by this, this concept.
4: Yeah. Uh, you don't want me to take the whole forty minutes on. Yeah, just a
2: layperson's overview. Yeah, a lot of non-academics listening to this, ourselves different. including. Yeah, 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 but it is very different, and I, I really think there's a resurgence of people that are very, very interested in it, even at a popular level.
4: You're right. You're right. Uh, the really short answer would be read my book on. And <laughs> we encourage everyone to do that. Yes, well, you know, absolutely. Divinity and process, um, but. Uh, there are lots of good introductions to to process theology, um, but it all comes actually uh, out of engagement of the philosopher Alfred North Whitehead, who was one of the great mathematicians of the first half of the twentieth century, mm-hmm. a British mathematician, uh, very tuned to the new developments in physics, uh, just as you know, relativity was breaking and then quantum. Theory. He was writing uh, his his great works and integrating all of this. But what he realized is that the Western modern uh, worldview uh, doesn't doesn't suffice. It doesn't hold. It's crack. It's going to crack up in very destructive ways. Unless it undergoes some dramatic transformation. And that's what he tried to facilitate. And in two directions. But on the one hand, to take account of the very non deterministic and non mechanistic new physics, especially of of quantum events, you know, with their radical indeterminacy and interrelatedness, Uh, and then the relativity. Uh, of Einstein that connects the whole universe in a whole fresh way. But he wanted to bring that into philosophical uh, reflection. Uh, And at the same time, he realized that the West was in a profound crisis uh, because of its, its schism between uh, fact, which it leaves to science and value, which it leaves to religion Uh, and religion in in what he considered an increasingly sentimentalized and privatized form. So what he thought his task as he really grew from mathematics into philosophy was above all to find a way to integrate uh, religion and science in a a sufficient worldview uh, for people to inhabit. Um, Now, he was the son of, of an Anglican, a uh, uh, clergyman uh in the on the west coast of 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 britain uh, mm. you know so he carried a lot of his Christian background with him, but it wasn 't writing Christian theology he was writing philosophy but it 's philosophy that that God <laughs> snuck into uh, which was why it then didn't uh become a very respected and, and widely disseminated philosophy for a very long time because philosophy was, you know, Heidegger and was Wittgenstein at that time. I hope these are familiar names at least.
2: Yeah. Absolutely.
4: Uh, and and these had gone in a, in a radically uh, secularizing, uh, if, if not uh, straightforwardly atheist, direction. Uh, but he felt like part of this new worldview was opening up, uh, mm. not the death of God, uh, But uh, a glimpse of another (laughs) face of God, that is, uh, it's not that that the symbol of God uh, is just dying and being replaced by a triumphant scientific materialism, though it sure can seem that way, but rather uh, that we have a chance to understand something about uh, the divine and the divine relationship to the world that had been occluded uh, for many, many centuries, and partly because of the way in which Christianity had had developed uh, when it when it uh, became imperial uh, and imitated uh, in, in the image of God, uh, the, Im- the image of Caesar. You
1: know, yeah,
4: when the ch- as Whitehead puts it, when you know, when the church. Gave when the when the church gave unto God that which belonged only uh, to Caesar. Oh, <laughs> right, right. Uh, so so there's a deeply political ethic also in this philosophy. But what emerges is a sense of of God who is in profound, interactive relationship with the universe, and, mm. and it's a universe that is made up. Of interactions. That's what it is. It's not made up of things in a void that kind of look at each other from the outside and occasionally collide mm-hmm. or glom onto each other. It's amazing. It's a whole force field of of continual uh, interactive processes, and that's what you are, and that's what I am, and that's what we are right now together. What I am at this moment in process thought isn't exactly the same as what I was before this podcast began.
2: Oh, that's so
4: good. You know, and that's true of you too, for good or for ill. <laughs> you know, this could, yeah. this could be a, a dangerous influence here, this process theology. But what process theology is saying is, moment by moment, we are actually evolving in process. Mm. And all of my past comes along with me. It's not that, you know, there's just discontinuity. That is all there. All that I have ever experienced, mostly unconscious, is is flowing into this moment. But I'm composing myself differently each moment. I'm composing myself. myself. And right now, because you're foremost in my experience, you're becoming part of me as I become part of you. And you always will be uh, whatever comes. And, uh, again, one has to say for good or for ill, it's not a romantic view our relationships can deeply deeply abuse and hurt us can poison us Uh, but they're also the source of 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 not just what we are but of, of, of what gives nourishment and joy meaning so we're all in this constant relationship to each other and what's crucial in process thought is it's not just human beings with each other and it's not just you know me and my god uh, in a kind of intimate one-on-one,
0: it's, mm. um,
4: it's all of the creatures of the universe. Right, they're all experiencing. It's a live universe. That's another aspect of the emerging science, scientific work that that Whitehead uh, had brought into play in his, especially his great work, Process and Reality. Uh, that when we're talking about these events of of interaction. There these events of becoming in relation. We're not just talking about human beings, and we're not just talking about God, who is also in this becoming with us. Mm. We're talking about every creature uh, in the universe, and that means not just every deer and dog, uh, flower. It also means every quantum electron, every cell of your body, every little member of the billions of microbiota that we now know inhabit us in the microbiome, right? They're all in some way alive. They're not conscious. Uh, But to be a a, a creature in this creation is to be alive uh, in radically different ways. And and Mm -hmm. so there is this, you know, just this utterly rhythmic vibrational sense of the creation unfolding And God is taking part in it. God is imbibing it. God is calling it forth moment by moment, not forcing anything. Luring is the word, (laughs) inviting, (laughs) but it's called the divine lure. That's the technical term in process theology for the way God's will works. It's not a will that coerces, it, it persuades. So this divine lure calls forth new possibilities, and we act on them or not, you know, to some degree. Not. It's up to us. Up to us, to be tuned in or not. Um, yeah. And sin makes it, you know, what we call original sin is quite a filter, you know, on that lure. So we're we're very likely just to block it out. Mm. But that man. Yeah. So that's 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 a bit of an interest. That divine lure is calling us forth, moment by moment, into newness, into freshness, towards each other, uh, towards our worlds in bigger, more complex, more intense ways, Uh, and yet also in ways that that retain the the sense of togetherness. That's the call, at least. Uh, And what about God? Who's not coercing it or forcing it or stepping in to do our work for us, just calling it? Well, you know, this is not the traditional God the sovereign image, is it?
2: Right, no, right. that's actually what I was just about to ask you is, you know, the, one of the reasons we call this place the deconstructionists is because uh, John and I became very aware of just our sort of implicit biases and the, the traditions we were handed and uh, realized that, you know, to question them, to open them up, to uh, allow them to encounter, as you put it, the lure of the unknown or the, you know, as maybe in your book, the impossible, the cloud. Um, this seems like it's coming from this process theology and and process versus you know what we would have been brought up with is more of a traditional western orthodox kind of classic systematic theology this view of god is is different but i don't think it's you know not something we find within the past christian tradition and it seems like in your work you're you're actually kind of kind of enlivening and, and bringing back up in freshness a lot of what uh, the Enlightenment sort of uh, quenched. Mm-hmm. Would, would that be a, a way to sort of understand your work in,
4: in some ways? Oh, I think that's a, a great insight into what I'm trying to do. Yes, I mean, uh, many process theologians work with various, you know, ancestral antecedents. Uh, very often they're working with Scripture. Um, uh, and I often find myself going uh, back to the Bible as well. Mm. You know, I wrote that, that whole book just on basically the second verse of the Bible, which is <laughs> face, face of the Deep. Uh, uh, and we can get into that later if there's time, if you want to. But uh, that, that's something I share with, uh, with other process theologians often uh, looking at Scripture with, with fresh eyes uh, once one Gets free of, of the kind of, of you know metaphysical framework uh, that Christian Orthodoxy had had um, locked into uh, rather early, which brought it a lot of great insights uh, and the possibility of philosophical thinking out of out of Greece, uh, but also brought with it you know some some static categories you know like. God is is the unmoved mover from Aristotle. Right. But then that's locked into Christian orthodoxy, especially in, 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 the, in the form of Thomas Aquinas, and anything else is a heresy. You know, oh, right. God has to be unmoved, both in the sense of not affected uh, emotionally, but also just not influenced. Um, Which doesn't even make sense when you look at the incarnation. Exactly. Or just prayer in the Bible, any sense that there's a, a dialogue, right, that there's an interaction that... That that God is is responding is responsive is feeling is moved is compassionate, and that was a big problem, uh, in, in in the history of scholastic Christianity. Anselm really struggles, you know, with this, and mm-hmm. Todd works on that in his little introductory book, Process Theology and Introductory Exposition. Looks at how nobly Anselm was dealing with this obvious contradiction, you know, the sense that, well, God has to be changeless if God is eternal. And therefore, you know, God cannot be be changed, be affected. But to be compassionate means to, basically to feel with the other. Mm. Compassion, to feel with. Passion means literally, you know, from the Greek root, to be moved. <laughs> so if you can't have a God who's moved, you don't have a compassionate God. And Anselm really worried about this.
3: <laughs> oh, man.
4: But his solution was to say, well, uh, God appears to us to be moved, to be compassionate. Uh, but in fact, God is just uh, giving us what we need. Uh, and in, him, in him, him, of course it's a him, in himself, <laughs> he is not moved. So that was the solution. It, you know, in, in relationship, it appears to us this way. Man. You know, so it was a real struggle, right, to try to work with those static categories that came yes. out of Greco-Roman thinking of a God who is um, e- eternal in the sense of, of changeless, uh, of, of Im- immobile, of dispassionate, of unaffected. All of that's just part of the orthodoxy we've inherited, uh, and then also pure act. Uh, that phrase from Aristotle again, that was right, you know, pure act, meaning no receptivity, no passivity, because what that's passivity, that's passion, that's being moved. And in any way, it's like, you know, women <laughs> in the stereotype. So, you have this purely, purely masculine, pure act, utterly unmoved uh, that has been enshrined. In orthodoxy, and yet all the time, all the all the scriptural stories, images, poetics, metaphors of of a God very, very moved (laughs) uh, to a wide range of of feelings, you know, including anger, uh, and certainly great, uh, great tenderness, compassion, pity, love, care, hope for us. So, man, so process theology has been. In that way, very interested in the way in which Whitehead's categories, where God is in becoming, because why? Because God feels the world, yes, moment by moment, everything in it, you know, but like every molecule on every planet <laughs> in every galaxy, uh, God's feeling all of that. It's not in. It's it's not leaving God indifferent. It's not irrelevant to God. You know, this boundless universe. It's in, you know. With, 14 billion galaxies in conversation <laughs> that's all all in god, all in god and god's feeling it all somehow and that's yeah. in this model and and therefore moment by moment is is becoming with it it's like the content of god's experience that's what it is um so God's feeling it and feeling all of its spontaneities and richness and freedom and craziness and and wickedness and sorrow, feeling it all and luring it to something more, something better.
3: Uh,
2: Man, that is so beautiful. Just unbelievable. I love this stuff.
3: So we're, we're kind of already going there, um, but we, we really want to talk about your most recent book that that we both absolutely love right now, Cloud of the Impossible. Love it. So, We've kind of already gotten into it, but um, mm-hmm. the one thing we really wanted you to talk about a little bit before we really dive into it is the title. The title, Cloud of the Impossible, um, is one that you borrowed from a phrase that you found from Nicholas of Cusa. Who's I? Yes. Um, yeah. And the title alone is is packed with a lot of questions and ideas. Um, could you break that down for us a little bit? Yeah.
4: <laughs> yes. I think so. Um, <laughs> maybe
2: maybe. Yeah.
4: I am working on a different book, but the cloud is uh, still with me. Uh, yes, the phrase, as you say, is is from a text of Nicholas of Cusa, who is is perhaps the uh, patron saint of that book, um, and, and who wrote in the fifteenth century. And so, this is a book. Uh, from this uh, this phrase is taken from a book of his from 1453 uh, on the vision of God, uh, mm. and the, the, and it it occurs this phrase the cloud of the impossible uh, when he's when he's trying to describe this experience of uh, of just of struggling with with real contradictions in one's thinking or in one's life, uh, and he was thinking of his theology because why he was realizing uh, the contradiction between a God who only moves and a God who is also moved.
0: Mm. And
4: he realized you need both. And he realized this was a contradiction to, you know, everything he knew about the faith, <laughs> about, you know, what was acceptable theologically. So he was thinking, but then sort of having a meta-reflection, right, on, on why, you know, why these contradictions uh Cut, cut so deeply and and where you go with them and what he realizes is these deep contradictions where there's truth on both sides uh, take you uh, into a, a dark place a place where you do not understand where your cognition breaks down and and he felt there's nothing more important there's no greater gift than realizing where our ignorance kicks in and, That's so good. You know, and he 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 was a Christian cardinal at this point, but he quote, you know, he's, he quotes Socrates, right? Knowing that you don't know, to know that you don't know, right? The beginning of wisdom. Uh, so he's pulling that in, and he's pulling in uh, the Christian mystics uh, from Gregory of Nyssa and especially uh, uh, the pseudo Dionysius of the seventh century the whole tradition of, of theology that really meditated on on the unknowing. That is the, the deep, mysterious unknowability of God, of what we call God, because they realize that all of our words for God, even God, don't quite hack it. <laughs> you know? No. They turn quickly into little idols. Why? Because we think we understand God. Um, so he found that there is great value in 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 facing our contradictions because they push us into this unknowing and if we are courageous and we deal with what he thinks hurts it hurts and enter into that cloud uh there's a luminosity that breaks open from within from within it
2: uh that's so good so this is this is something that we we talk around a lot on the podcast, but but since we have somebody so so gifted in explaining these these kind of higher level concepts, I'd love to just utilize that for a second. This this idea, I think what you're talking about is apophatic theology. That's it. And so if you could just indulge me for a little bit, because your book deals a lot, in in my opinion, with obviously apophatic theology and this whole this whole idea uh, the way i kind of summarized it as i was making notes when i when i read is you know the cloud is this the cloud of impossible is this apophatic entanglement or this non-knowable and non-separable sort of cloud this this entangled non-knowability and it seems to me like you know you mentioned aristotle and and um thomas aquinas and anselm and you know pushing towards the enlightenment to to modern day western christianity we've lost and are just kind of starting to reclaim this beautiful need for the apophatic could you so could you explain a little bit about what that is to our listeners this big kind of scholarly word apophatic theology because um, you were already doing it but i just want to highlight that and then kind of how does that play into your work
4: yeah, that word can be a little off-putting as can the other phrase negative theology right it refers because of course uh, it's ultimately profoundly affirmative but the negative here is the sense that anything we we think we know about the ultimate uh, we actually do not know <laughs> we, <laughs> we and that's the negating and and therefore to get to some wisdom means to recognize that what we feel we know, we know only very tenuously. We don't know in the sense of, you know, a cognitive clench. Uh, you know, and this is, this is deep in the Christian tradition, isn't it? This is in, this is in, in, in Paul. In, Corinthi- in Corinthians, you know, knowledge uh, knowledge puffs up, right? Faith builds up. Right. Uh, right. And it's not that Paul didn't have a lot to say, a lot to write. Uh, and he felt he knew some things. Indeed, uh, he felt he knew some extraordinary things that maybe no one else could put as clearly as he could, right? So there's no lack of cognitive confidence in, in theology. He's really creating theology for, for the future of Christianity. Um, but th- th- there's, there's that awareness that, that, that knowledge tends to, to puff us up to lead to a, a kind of ego inflation where we think we know. Uh, and, and, and then become, uh, you know, complacent in either our 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 mastery, if we're on the dominant side of the hierarchy, or in our in our uh, in our submission, uh, in our un, unquestioning uh, uh, acceptance of what's just dished out to us, uh, if we're more on the receiving side. Uh, so, there's a whole tradition then that develops. With, uh, the, the notion of the cloud emerges first in Gregory of Nyssa. As you know, I have a chapter kind of tracking that cloud history. It's, it's really an exegesis uh, of the, the cloud over Mount Sinai uh, that, uh, that God makes a date with uh, Moses to meet him in. Uh, makes that arrangement in advance. meet him in the dark cloud atop the mountain. Uh, and, and that's where you know he receives the commandments. Uh, and then Gregory of Nyssa, thousand or more years later, is, uh, is exegeting that dark cloud in a mystical way in the third century. Uh, so very early church father. Um, and he, he's the one who really makes the move towards apophasis, negative theology, this realist—because theology was already getting very confident as it developed its philosophical base, uh, and, and he wanted that humility as built into it also. It was developing uh, forms of, 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 of uh, hierarchy that were perhaps structurally very important and necessary— uh, for a young institution, but that could also assert, it, you know, doctrinal claims just un- with unquestionability. So you have this meditation on the cloud early on, hmm. opening up another zone, uh, an awareness that the deep, the deep things of faith aren't aren't captured in in language at all, and that that then develops um, through a whole history of figures that we we won't keep going into now pseudo-dionysius in the 7th century being perhaps the most important until then figures like Meister Eckhart of uh, mm-hmm. 11th century and uh, very important to deconstruction uh, and, and my Nicholas of Cusa yes. in the 15th is picking up that whole tradition of the, of the dark cloud, the cloud of unknowing. And what's wonderful is he's doing this right at the dawn of the Renaissance, right? And he's an amazing Renaissance thinker. He's a talented mathematician. He supports the arts in important ways. Uh, and it's all about all kinds of knowledge. Indeed, in in the same book that where he dis- discusses really this apathetic move, the book is called, this another book, an early one, Docta Ignorantia, the learned ignorance, that is learning about our ignorance, learning that we're ignorant so we can uh. really learn. In, in the second part of that book, uh, an amazing thing happens. Remembering now we're in, this is now, this is 1440. Uh, 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 he is in that second book thinking about cosmology. Whoa. Thinking about the universe and thinking about how it's the universe that's made in the image of God, not just people. And therefore, it must be very close to, uh, it must be as much like God as possible. Therefore, it must be in some way infinite, though not in the divine way. Therefore, if it's infinite, hmm, it has no boundary, right? It's boundless. If it has no boundary, you can't find the center. If it doesn't have a circumference, it doesn't have a center. And he takes this further. This is using his apophatic technique of recognizing the contradictions, the unknowabilities, and pushing, pushing in. Therefore, he says, the earth cannot be the center of the universe. Whoa. You know, this is a century before Copernicus and then Galileo, right? And he goes on in the next paragraph, and no star, no star can be the center because the universe has, has no fixed center, right? Who knew, who knew that it's a theologian? Wow, so man! Realized that the you know the Earth is not the center of the universe, nor is it fixed. It's in constant mo- motion. We just can't see it because we're in relate we're relative to it. And comment- oh, whoa. right? Commentators have commented on relativity, so you can see how well Kuzma did hook me. But it's incredible knowledge, new knowledge is being <laughs> produced by him because he's so tuned in to his own ignorance.
1: Man,
0: wow. You're
1: never really gonna have control of it all, so you best get cool with where your chip's gonna
0: fall. We are the sun in mother's milk in customers.
2: Something we could all learn a great deal from, you know, we're choking on certitude in the West and especially in the Western church. And I think that this resurrection of the apophatic and mysticism and all these things and the interrelatedness of all of this is something that is just a, a breath of fresh air. I think John has a question specifically about that.
3: Yeah, yeah. So so I, I think one of the concepts and one of the, the, the devices that you use um, in this book that kind of perked up my inner science nerd um, <laughs> definitely was paying attention Uh, you use this idea that from quantum physics uh, to help explain this cloud of impossibility um, specifically planetary entanglement. And I know a lot of people at home are probably like, what, (laughs) this is a book about theology. How in the world is she tying in planetary entanglement? Oh, this is so good. So I was wondering if you could, if you could speak about that a little bit.
4: Oh, I'd love to. Um, and uh, perhaps this way, right? Planetary entanglement is is a phrase. It's right in the subtitle of the book, uh, that is, that I I like. I don't think it is uh, a phrase someone else uses, uh, but the phrase that I'm building on, that I am, as you say, taking right out of of physics and of and of very cutting edge physics, as far as I can keep up with it, um, is quantum entanglement, and. It's this entanglement at the quantum level uh, that uh, became a real clue for me uh, and helped to connect uh, some aspects of process theology and its cosmology, remembering that process thought was already always about, you know, for decades, reconnecting science and religion in fruitful ways. So uh, I thought there is some uh, new insight going on here, and it had weird resonances with <laughs> with Kusa as well. Um, but let me just say what you know, something about quantum entanglement, um, and it's something I you know everyone can just Google and learn lots about. There are lots of good podcasts on it, um, and I think my introduction in the book is is actually pretty good because I'm not. Uh, I'm not a science specialist, therefore I have to work really hard at understanding and I have to stay in lay language. Uh, You know, I don't have a lot of mathematical formulas popping through my mind, uh, so I really had to work at understanding, and I think that's helpful uh, for communicating it. But the amazing amazing thing about quantum entanglement is uh, this is the most radical relationalism uh, that I know of as expressed in science. Uh, this is, a, this is a, uh, a a theory in physics that has now uh, for the last 30 years been, been verified over and over and over in each major test uh, that really shows uh, that, that it's true that what the universe is made of is interactivities, uh, processes of, of relationship of, of everything to everything of anything to anything else uh, but in a very specific sense in quantum entanglement because um, quantum entanglement doesn't say everything is related to everything, process thought says that, Kuza says each is an each and all is an all but what quantum entanglement shows us is this, that if you take two, say like two photons in a laboratory right? Um, two particles of, uh, you know, electrons, of, uh, particles of light, and two photons, and and you connect them. That's called entangling them. In the laboratory, they then uh, become an entity. Now separate them again, and off they go, spinning in in opposite directions. Now that's very normal. That's predictable. Um, that they would go off uh, in opposite directions and that they would go off in exactly, uh, symmetrical ways and in exactly the same angle of spin, just in reverse, in inverse, right? One, one direction, or the other, and they can keep on moving, uh, for, for enormous amount, an inch is an enormous, is an enormous amount of space for a photon, of course, but they can go on moving for, uh, for light years, uh, apart from each other. Um, and here's here's the thing. Now, okay, quick quantum thing. Just so this is what was not surprising when these expe- when these um, experiments uh, began to formulate themselves. What's not surprising is it be- it's a quantum particle, and therefore, when you measure it, right, it you don't you can't predict in advance what 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 response you're going to get. Uh, that's the indeterminacy. Yes, underneath quant- that's, that makes for quantum uncertainty. That when you measure, you know, photon A, you can't predict uh, where it's going to land and, and let itself be measured. You can maybe predict uh, the, the the location, but not the speed, uh, or you can predict the speed, but not the location. You can't capture it, space time, uh, in a full prediction. Um, so, it, in other words, in certain way, it's responding. Um, let's say, what's called randomly, like you're, you know, a throw of ice. Okay, that's known. So here's what was so spooky when this thinking began, and this began in the 30s, in the 30s, and Einstein, Einstein uh, called it spooky action at a distance. It drove him crazy because it seemed to him irrational, mystical, crazy, it had to be ruled out. Uh, and he never managed to rule it out. Uh, <laughs> this spooky action at a distance. but it haunted him. Uh, and what is it? It's this. So you okay, you got those, you've got photon A and B you separate them and off they fly. Now, if you could measure both of them at the same time, each of them is going to react uh, you know, randomly, spontaneously, to the measurement itself, right? That's quantum physics. Each one, that's quantum physics. That's not a surprise. Einstein accepted that. Each one is going to respond unpredictably to its measurement. But here's the spook. It's that when you measure them at the same time, they they react at exactly the same instant, in exactly the same way mm. to the measurement. And yet,
2: Amazing. They
4: have no way of communicating with each other because they might be... Uh, miles or light years apart. And because this is happening in, in the same instant, and a signal can only travel within the speed of, of light. Um, uh, so that's, that's the spooky thing, that two, two photons, two electrons, two particles, once they have been connected, are never actually separable, no matter how far apart they are they're still responding as though they're (laughs) they're hugging each other.
2: It's amazing. And the implications for process theology are like, I mean, for a nerd, like are so obvious and exciting.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you get it. And it just says something about the creation, doesn't it? If you want to get spiritual about it and about what kind of...
2: I do. I do. (laughs) I want to get spiritual, Catherine.
4: (laughs) You know, what kind of universe it really is it's just so much spookier and more interesting than it than you know modern science up until very recently had 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 let us know uh, because it had all the answers or it would soon but now we're a whole new time with quantum uh entanglement getting just verified over and over it was just a year ago wasn't it
3: yeah. I believe so. Yeah, oh, yeah. There, you, very recently, big,
4: big headline article in the Times and all about it, a, a test that was felt to be very definitive that was done, I think, in the Netherlands. Uh, but the tests up till then have all been uh, have all been verifying it. Uh, but it couldn't be tested until the 80s because it take you know it's incredibly difficult technology. So now we're we're seeing this spooky connectedness of the universe that, in, from a certain perspective. It doesn't matter how far apart two things are. Once they've been connected, they're they're never separated. They're still somehow part of each other. They're still somehow part of the same um, system. Uh, but there's still an immediate, an immediate contact of some kind that we do not understand. That yeah. clearly has something to do with the waves of the waves of energy, uh, rather than the. the the particles stuff. So it's saying something about the universe, you know, at the same time, we're getting all this about dark energy and dark matter. So the universe is is ending up being a kind of wonderfully mysterious, spooky stuff.
2: It is, it is. It's, it's absolutely wonderfully mysterious. And I love how you do such an incredible job. Um, a comprehensive in this book, incredible job of weaving together the apophatic, the, that unknowability that, uh, that ignorance, that beautiful ignorance with all of this new scientific discovery and entanglement. And you even go into things like Walt Whitman and just tying it up into places that you just never would expect to see it before. There's a there's a surprise that's always around the uh, every other page reading this book. And we could just go all day. We'd need another six episodes to, to <laughs> talk about all this. Hopefully this is just a teaser and people go out and start to really mine your work in this Hopefully this resurrection or this resurgence of the mystery and the unknown and the apophatic and mysticism all this kind of stuff serves you well and hopefully you sell a whole bunch more books and because you deserve to this is really good stuff. I'd like to end with our last few minutes here talking about something that's a little bit more practical for some of our listeners that are probably enjoying this conversation and you know the uh, all of the implications that there could be, but I think you really, you land the plane towards the end of the book in your chapter after the theopoetics of the cloud. Um, I just want to read you a little snippet here and then just get you to kind of land the plane for us and give us something a little bit practical. Um, you, so, you say this at, toward the end of your book, um, After all, still, the God question. With one last gasp of theological authority, let me therefore say unto you, That for which God is a nickname, cares not whether you believe in God, doesn't give a damn, isn't in the damning business. What matters, what might matter endlessly, is what we earth dwellers now together embody. Not what we say about God, but how we do God. And I think this is where you're getting at Theopoetics, which, you know, Pete Rollins and and Caputo talk about Theopoetics in the way of, you know, it's not just trying to say something that can't be said, because that's what we use poetry for, to try to say something that can't be said. Mm -hmm. But you talk about it in terms of God-making. I wonder if you could just end with us by talking a little bit about theopoetics and (laughs) God-making.
4: Yeah. I really love uh, taking theopoetics back to its ancient um, sources really with, again, the, the Greek fathers and Gregory of Nyssa is right in there. Uh, but there the word is theopoiesis, um, and it, it does mean uh, God-making or becoming God, and uh, the same thinkers who were developing apophatic theology were developing the sense of, of theopoiesis, and they weren't thinking about poetry. Uh, right. that's, a, that's a very modern use of theopoetics, and I love that too. Uh, but this is, this is something uh, more theologically fundamental. Uh, this is what then Athanasius, Mr. Orthodoxy, uh, meant when he said um, uh, God became human so that the human uh, might become God. Oh, yeah. Now, that's that becoming divine uh, that, is, it is, it, that is our task. And that Protestantism, especially, really uh, repressed or eclipsed or lost sight of, or really didn't want to word out about how these Orthodox fathers were into this, because it could seem too too arrogant, too uppity. Yeah. Uh, in, in fact, I, I disagree. I think it's the source of the the most absolute humility.
2: Yes, I agree.
4: But this, but this, so this ancient sense of from the patristic period of theopoiesis has, has seemed important to me to retrieve this this becoming divine as our task, not that I will become God, but that in our entanglement together and with the whole of our, our planet, and <laughs> perhaps indeed, indeed within, within that which we nickname God, uh, there is a becoming of the divine. Uh, and so... That becoming divine, which is god's own unfolding, but which is our unfolding in God, uh, means that means that in what we do, we' better be mindful that we're you know we're doing God wow, um, and we uh want to do it well <laughs> uh, if we are mindful that in our actions there's some. God-making going on, uh, that does call us to uh, a pretty intense sense of responsibility, doesn't it? Yes. For our decisions, for our creations, for our actions, uh, for our life together on this very now fragile uh, planet. So the... You know, finally, the the way in which the apophatic entanglement lands for me—the sense of a a mysterious unknowing that opens us to to new kinds of recognition of our of our Uh, interrelatedness—this apophatic entanglement then uh, does 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 land uh, in continuous uh, practice. We're Practicing in our talking together, we are we are practicing, but we're practicing as part of and for the sake of uh, much greater uh, embodiments, aren't we? We're members of something much greater, and that has traditionally in Christianity been our membership, our being members one of another in the body of of the Messiah, the body of Christ. Um, and I suspect that the divine lure to us now is to realize that that body is, is a body that only lives uh, in the healthy body of, of the planet, you know, of the earth. And that we now have uh, very, very pressing uh, responsibility. Uh, it's, it's a time of great urgency. I don't want to, Say emergency because that makes me panic. <laughs> we seem, according to climate science's utter uh, consensus, to have approximately a generation to get our act together yeah. Yeah. Uh, as a species and to stop uh, destroying uh, our our future. Uh, so that seems to me now a very sacred calling uh, for theological thinkers. And doing, doing God would first of all be. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Be, uh, the, the tikkun, uh, as, as the Kabbalah puts it, the repair uh, of, of the wounds that, that we have made in the creation. Uh, but that's, that's also creative and, and loving and, and joyous work, not, not a work of panic. Uh, but of yeah, you know, a work of pen of, of everything of, that I'm, I'm doing a lot with Paul's Corinthians these days. That 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 God may be, uh, panta and pan and panim. You know, all in all. Mm.
3: Wow. I, I can see no better way to, uh, to end, end this episode. I mean, that was beautiful. So, oh, so good. Uh, before we, uh, before we part ways though, um, where is the best place for people to go to, to find your work, keep up on, on what you're doing. And you did mention earlier that you are working on a new book. Uh, are, are we able to get a teaser in terms of what that's going to be about?
4: Well, yes. Um, the, the book that I think people should start with is definitely on the mystery. Um, and uh, I think it does serve a, a fairly good introductory function, though I, I don't I don't imagine it comes off as condescending in any way. But um, the book that uh, I have a book coming out that's a collection of essays, and actually I think it's going to be really quite quite accessible, uh, more vivid because the essays come from a lot of different contexts in, in the world and over the last few years, and that's that's called Intercarnations. Mm. So I'll be out in a few months from Fordham. But uh, the one I'm, I'm writing right now is, is going to be a little book, <laughs> I promise. And it is <laughs> – right. I just am finishing a draft tomorrow morning, uh, and it's three chapters. Um, I'll deliver it as the Taylor lectures at Yale in February, and then I think it'll be ready to pretty much get to press. And it is called uh, A Political Theology of the Earth. Um, so oh, wow. I think you can see that that's that's pick, <laughs> picking up on the the ecological uh, edge of theological thinking, but wanting to to keep it politically uh, intense, you know, vibrant, um, active um, so that uh, we do God instead of <laughs> doing in our future. Uh, we do need to find new ways politically. You know, within the system and outside, pressing opponent, you know, to bring about the needed the needed transformation. So, it's strange to be writing that book right now in this election season, but that fortunately is a topic we don't need to get into.
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Well, we we just want to thank you for your time. Um, I know Adam and I um, absolutely love um, the work that you're doing. We think it's vitally important, yes. especially in today's day and age. And um, we we hope a ton of people check out your work. And uh, again, we just want to thank you for the time that you've uh, been able to share with us today.
4: Well, thank you, John. And thank you, Adam. And thank you to each one of you who might be hearing this. So please do your work. Do your God. (laughs) Be in touch.
2: (laughs) Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Catherine. We we enjoyed this immensely.
4: We'll communicate again sometime.
2: Yes, absolutely. Thanks again.
4: Bye-bye.
3: Yeah, still with us still intact <laughs> <laughs> that's Adam's impression of our brains after we got done interviewing this this particular guest um, as I kicked the trash can um, Wow I, I you know what? I, I just want to comment briefly on what you had said in the intro and and it made me think of the fact that God to me in, in much the same way as uh, kind of finding out about Santa Claus right when you're a kid and then you find out it's just um, it's just a dude in a costume, and then you're just so disappointed. It just takes the magic away. In mm. that same way, I, I I I'm with you. I, I never have wanted the divine uh, God, uh, whatever you want to call it, um, to be that that human esque. I mm. guess yeah. Um, because if if God can be defined and described in in human concepts, then that it just takes away the, the the majesty, I think, and the power. Uh, so if, if we don't have a God that's beyond uh, our capabilities of understanding, then, you know, what are we, as they say, what are we even talking about at that point? You know, it, it really brings God down to a very human form with very human limitations, I think.
2: Absolutely. This whole idea, um,
3: you know, I'll, I'll, I'll be very candid.
2: I, I read a lot of her book, it's a um, thick one. It's a not, not only is it thick, but it's one of those books where one paragraph would leave me just wondering, and, and I mean this in a beautiful way, things I'd never wondered before. Mm, that's good, man. And what I love about Catherine Keller is her, her sharp intellect. She's obviously brilliant as an understatement. Mm. She's imaginative. You know, if you've been a listener for some time, um, you'll find Catherine Keller in the same circles that you'll find a lot of the work by Jack Caputo. And one of the things that I think links the two together is in this um, unsaying, this deconstructing, you know, whatever you want to call it, there is more space to say things in new ways, um... There, it, there's just so, it's so freeing to hear somebody like Catherine talk about the ideas of apophasis or mystery or unsayability, which is, you know, something Pete Rollins picks up. It's something Roar picks up. It's something yeah. Tillich talks about. It's something that uh, Jack Caputo talks about. We need this. Yeah. We need this. This is, I think, such a part of who we are as the Deconstructionist podcast. Is constantly reminding ourselves, constantly reminding our listeners, constantly reminding anybody that wants to listen that um, language is very, very fickle and that we need to keep stretching it and pulling it and bending it and creating new space for concepts to live and move and breathe in imagination. And uh, God has to be bigger, has to be bigger than the language. So there has to be an unsaying. And then There has to be an entanglement, you know, there's this idea of interconnectedness and how it's all connected. And not only are we connected materially, but ideologically and ideas are connected and just this unbelievable, complex, apophatic, mysterious entanglement is just one of the coolest things. I mean, talk about setting your mind free to really just get out there and imagine and think it's beautiful. And that's why I wanted it to be on this podcast. It's it's incredible. What a great interview
3: yeah absolutely and it, and it's interesting too because if you look at uh some of the tradition of many of the world's religions um and and you look specifically at the mystics within each mm-hmm. uh, tradition um this is something that they've been talking about for a long time this this <sighs> uh, this huge mystery and this this unknowable yeah. um undefinable you know uh you know ground of being or or, or whatever you want to call it um just so not I, worrying about putting words to it yeah silence so, so why try si-
2: yeah how about just silence yeah <sighs> so good you need to be silent after listening to katherine keller do that yeah that's what we recommend right now <laughs> a healthy dose of silence so we're just gonna stop yeah uh, and uh
3: the the band this week
2: oh this is a really cool story so while i was reading the book i noticed that she'd start each chapter off with a quote from somebody or someone you know old old author new author something like that and I noticed that throughout the the chapters, and then in a couple of the intros to the chapters, she was referencing this band called The Cloud Cult. Yes. And I was like, the, the book is called The Cloud of the Impossible. And I was like, oh, well, I should check them out. That sounds really cool. And their music is
3: awesome. And I had already been listening to them and didn't even know it. And you're <laughs> like, hey, we should use these guys. We should ask them you know, if, if they'll let us use their music. And I'm like, okay. So I looked into it. I'm listening to it. I'm like, holy crap, they're already on my playlist. <laughs> I'm like, Ugh. and they were so gracious and so nice. And they and literally, I think their response was, um, absolutely, this sounds like a very important topic to discuss, and we would love to be a part of it.
2: How often does a brilliant doctor of constructive theology recommend a band, a kick-ass band, yeah, in a book, and that it just blows your mind? That's why you gotta love Catherine Keller. Come on now. Let's
3: give it up for Catherine Keller.
0: Hey.
3: (laughs) And as always, uh, you know, if you like the band, if you're digging the music, check out our uh, playlist on Spotify. Um, I think it's, uh, I think I titled it Music to Deconstruct to. Oh, good job, man. Thanks, man.
2: Nicely done. (laughs) John deserves a round of applause. Oh, thanks. uh, t-shirts still available online we got a couple left and uh, a new batch with a brand new limited edition design by another listener yeah coming out soon that i think you guys are really gonna like so check those out in our store link is in the show notes yep thank you guys again for being with us on another episode of the deconstructionist podcast um next week we continue
3: the the theme Uh, we have another guest on that we're really excited about another lesser known individual and so if if this was a little hard for you to digest. Um, uh, he, he he kind of discusses a lot of the same concepts, but, um, probably a little bit more of a, uh, uh, I don't know, digestible way. Yeah. Like a popular approach. This guy's a
2: pastor and, um, he is academic in nature, but, oh man, you guys are really, really going to like this. So good. I love that we get to sort of, uh, I mean, he had a podcast and, you know, some people are going to know who he is, but, uh, so many more people hopefully are going to know who he is after next week, and I can't wait until next week. So stay tuned. We love you guys. Thank you for doing this with us, making it uh, making the world a more safe place to doubt, wrestle, struggle, be honest, and have conversations. It's so important. For now, we are your hosts. I am Adam Narlock, and I'm John Williamson. Grace and peace, everybody. <laughs>
1: Your name, and
4: you formed out of the
1: emptiness. Called your name, and I swear this time will be my best. Called your name, and I found home, sweet home.
0: Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> May you find grace
1: when overtaken by the tempest. May you find you. The cynic and the pessimist May you find faith in the great unknown You just wait.